0: Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the, uh, the very long-term origins of the Vietnam War, well, the various um, Vietnam or indo wars, as, as they're known. Um, and really, I'm going to be looking today more at the relationship between France and her Indo-Chinese colonies, and what happens to that relationship, the disruption within that relationship, Uh, ...caused by the fall of France during the war. Now, the the fall of France is uh, an unexpected surprise and a catastrophe for the Allied powers. Um, As I've mentioned in in previous podcasts, um, Britain had had thought that she would do the, the bulk of fighting at war... Um, on the seas, and that the French army would um, face the, the Germans with a small British expeditionary force on the Western Front. And hopefully there would be a slightly more mobile rerun of um, the First World War. Um, you know, the, What all sides sought to avoid was trench warfare, um, but it just so happened that the Germans had really mastered the, the war of manoeuvre Um, as they show uh, when they sweep France away in about six weeks. Uh, Once France was defeated, obviously the the fascist um, puppet government, the the Vichy regime, in the southern half of the country was established and laid claim to all of France's existing African and Asian colonies and uh, colonies in the Middle East, particularly Syria and Lebanon. Um, During the war, however, um, it the uh Not only is there a um, a war by the free French against um, Nazism, but it's also a kind of a, a civil war really uh, between uh, the free French and the Vichy regime that's played out globally uh, the It comes it to um, comes to blows in syria um, and the uh, the British and free French oust the Vichy regime in Syria after a, a, a long and protracted campaign though. What what is left behind really in Syria uh, are Vichy apparatchiks who are openly embraced really by the Free French later on, um, because both sides are united not so much in their loathing of the Germans but also their, their dislike of Britain too. France's defeat um, matters really not only in uh, Europe but in Asia. I mean, what happens in the summer of nineteen forty? Echoes in Asia very powerfully. Uh, the Japanese are well aware that European colonies are ripe for the taking, and the first to fall is um, the uh, G- the French colony of Indochina. Uh, the Japanese occupy the North by uh, some kind, some treaty arrangement um, from with the reluctant Vichy regime that's fundamentally weakened and taking its uh, its cue from Berlin. Um, the the Japanese are interested in Vietnam really in the same way they're interested in Burma the, by occupying both you can block off the flow of resources and arms to southern China and southern China, re- China really is um, Japan's main goal during the war dominating China is you know, obviously very difficult because it's very large but also it's a, it's a great prize, it has um, the uh, Kind of mineral resources and manpower resources that, if um, harnessed, would make um, Japan an unassailable power in Asia and the Pacific. Japan, so Japan's chiefly, cons- cons- chiefly, beg your pardon, chiefly concerned with uh, the conquest of China and Vietnam was really the the conduit to to doing that. The Vichy French realised that there were powers to stop the invasion, and they so they come to an arrangement with the Japanese. Um, the Japanese occupy the north for about a year and they are well aware that any move to the south might alarm um, the not just the Vichy regime but also the Americans and the British the British do not want Japanese forces moving southern, suddenly through Southeast Asia getting close to Malaya and Singapore and the Americans are generally very suspicious of Japanese expansion in the Far East for their own reasons the Americans have uh, looked to um, have an open-door policy in China which meant they could trade freely um, and the idea of a, an imperial power dominating China in much the same way that the British had dominated India and blocking off America from those important global markets is uh, quite alarming to them and also there is a, a, a growing realisation that um, Japan Japan is the uh, military rival for the Americans in Asia and the Pacific so further Japanese expansion anywhere It's going to be uh, an unhappy occurrence as far as Roosevelt is concerned. Japan has really one main threat in the north, and that's the USSR, and really could do without um, creating for themselves another one in the region. But when Hitler invades Russia in June of 1941, uh, it presents Japan with the opportunity to strike uh, and they invade the rest of Vietnam now that the the, the um, USSR is tied up facing off Hitler um the USSR and Japan have a very uneasy non-aggression pact following the uh, the war uh, fought in 1939 in Mongolia between the two powers where Japan is, is defeated by the Soviets um, the, this opportunity to um, do something enables um the rest of Vietnam to be conquered, but in doing so uh, it leads Roosevelt to place an oil embargo on Japan, which you know threatens to cripple the country. Japan is not a mineral rich country uh, it really hasn 't got very much at all um, the there's a a very real fear of um japan's aircraft being grounded and her tanks in china grinding to a halt and her navy ceasing to operate and it was this action really that causes japan to plan the pearl harbor attack um... which you know, recent scholarship tends to suggest certain uh, certain key members of the japanese administration knew would be utterly futile um... but more on that another time um... okay so the thing about vietnam That I think is often lost is that Vietnam is this kind of, you know, we look at it in history terms as this kind of playground for great powers. We have the Americans, the French, the Chinese, even the British involved in the fate of Vietnam. Very rarely do we give much agency to the Vietnamese themselves. But uh, I wanted to kind of uh, address that a little bit this time. So by by the '30s, there was this uh, nationalist. Uh, uh, left of center nationalist popular front movement had emerged in Vietnam, um, and this emerges for two reasons. Partly, it's part of a kind of a wider anti colonial anti colonial movement um, in Asia uh, that had existed since the end of World War One. Um, the uh, world, the the experience of um, of a First World War had been profoundly disillusioning and shattering. To the uh, colonial subjects in Asia, some of whom did look to the European powers as being something special and important and um, World War I was kind of a part of revelation to them that not only were these powers actually quite vulnerable uh, and could be defeated, uh, but also they, they weren't necessarily best placed to um, create order and security within their with their own colonies and the, the growing threat of threat and kind of promise of Japan really uh, underlines that. Um also in nineteen thirty-six um Lion Blum in uh Leon Bloom, I beg your pardon in uh France um had pulled together you know, this Jewish socialist premier had pulled together a, a popular front of uh, the um, the French left in a kind of anti-fascist bloc that was designed really to respond to the threat of Nazism and also the threat of fascism in Spain, um, the Popular gov- Popular Front government um, was uh, well the Popular Front in Vietnam is kind of an echo of the Popular Front in France. So two years later, um, a more authoritarian government came to power in France, and it appointed Georges Catroux who was um, notorious for his uh, treatment of rebels in Syria as the governor in uh, Indochina. Um, the Popular Front in Vietnam went into hiding. They could see the writing on the wall, you know, saying a man like a true. Uh, it w- was a, a, a not very subtle message to all of them. Um and the French are worried about the threat of Japan. And also they're worried about um, these, the, the, the fear of, the, of a fifth column emerging, um, an Asian fifth column emerging in Vietnam um, of Japanese troops landing and a rebellion breaking out from, from the indigenous, uh, the indigenous um, peoples. And so um, the, the job really of France, and this goes for other European colonies, on the eve of war was to secure the um, secure uh, the colony uh, before really the inevitable attack came. Um, so that yes, the popular front goes into hiding, and the French were worried about the threat of Japan and, and and knew that many nationalists in Indochina had actually been to Vietnam and they were learning guerrilla warfare um, and negotiating with the Japanese. Part of the strategy that Japan would employ throughout Asia was to rely on nationalist uprisings to destabilise European colonies and to provide themselves with instant allies as they landed their troops. The only thing that obviously happens when Japan does land their troops is that, she's if, if anything, more, you know, infinitely more brutal and sadistic in the treatment of the, uh, the local peoples than, than the previous colonising powers. The large part of the popular front was the Communist Party, which, like the Chinese Communist Party, looked to Stalin in Russia for leadership, and it received its orders directly from Moscow. However, um, that analysis is to kind of also to ignore the fact that uh, there was an awful lot of um, initiative on the ground. They they were not simply waiting for secret messages to to come from Russia. They took uh, a kind of a, a, they broadly followed Stalinist policy and uh, listened closely to edicts from Moscow, but also did an awful lot of the the kind of decision-making themselves. Um, Stalin was much more concerned uh, with the possible threat from Germany uh, than with anything that was happening in Southeast Asia. Um, he ha- he does have his eye on Japan, but it's perhaps the um, places like the Vietnamese are something of a backwater in, in Sta- Stalin's world view. And following the when the Japanese invasion, uh, much of what Japanese propaganda had promised the poor Vietnamese and farmers in uh, Vietnam failed to materialise. There is no uh, kind of liberation for them, particularly just a change in leadership and sort of in uh, masters at the top. Um, Japan had promised that she would kind of rid the whole of Asia from European colonists and become a leader of the New Asia in a bid to inspire Pan Asian nationalism across the region. But the Japanese, astonished by their own success, which really is uh, a, um, achieved in a matter a matter of weeks, um, they have no intention of treating the Vietnamese as equals. And they the kind of um, uh, the, the the white European um, Superiority and you know racist um, colonial values are replaced by um, by, by a, a, a Japanese a, a kind of a yet more extreme Japanese uh, version thereof. Um, the Vietnamese are an easy source of free labour, and that's about the end of it. Um, Ho Chi Minh, of whom I'll talk about in a separate podcast, returns to Vietnam in 1941 and establishes uh, a secret headquarters in Kalbang province, which is on the very far northern border with China, which was difficult for the Japanese to control. And here he planned his war of resistance against Japan and gathered, a, you know, what little intelligence he can gather, he passes on eventually to the few um, uh, American agents uh, in the country from the, uh, from the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which was the, 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 the very... Um, rudimentary American inter- um, intelligence and um, guerrilla warfare unit during the war and the foreign of the CIA um, so from from there you know he has this is Ho Chi Minh 's first contact with Americans really, and um he, he he was not entirely not entirely disliked by them he He had a, a view as to how to leave Vietnam. Uh, Into in, independence after the war, um, he knew full well, as the, war, the tide of war was turning against the Japanese, that the threat would eventually come from the French again, uh, and he had no intention of allowing the French to retain control over um, Indochina uh, as a colony. Um, so he knew that Roosevelt was sympathetic to Vietnam's plight, um, and he wished to see an end to all European col- and he knew that Roosevelt wished to see an end to all European colonies in Asia. Cordell Hull, Roosevelt's Secretary of State, wrote that Roosevelt entertained strong views on independence for French Indochina, that French dependencies stuck in his mind as having been the springboard for the Japanese attack on the Philippines, Malaya and the Dutch East Indies. He could not but remember the devious conduct of the Vichy government in granting Japan the right to station troops there without any consultation with us, but with an effort to make the world believe we approved." Roosevelt had no uh, liking for de Gaulle, Um, again, someone we'll talk about a bit later on, and um, suspected that de Gaulle might quite easily establish himself as a French dictator. Uh, De Gaulle had behaved quite badly when it came to his dealings with the British and the Americans, and was uh, generally extremely stubborn, rude, and and disliked by both uh, Roosevelt and Churchill. And Roosevelt's view, I mean this had been a view of the British Empire as well, but Roosevelt's view in general was that um, he was damned if he was going to allow American lives to be lost in order to prop up two dying and uh, undemocratic uh, em- uh, imperial systems um, and in order to, to make a, a few uh, English aristocrats and French plutocrats exceedingly wealthy after the war. Uh, instead, uh, the world view that Roosevelt had really was that uh, a four-power world would hopefully emerge with uh, America, uh, Russia, the British, and the Chinese. And he didn't factor the French into this at all. America, Russia, British, and the Chinese. And they would have spheres of influence. Uh, not direct colonies, but countries that were allied to them and, and looked to each power as a, a kind of a patron. And this, hoped Roosevelt, would create um, a, a more stable world system uh, where no one power, there were no one power dominated, and no two powers sized up to one another and clashed. Of course, what happens is that Britain's bankrupt at the end of the war, and China is in internal chaos and eventually forced to communism anyway. And therefore, you not you don't get your uh, four part world. You get a bipolar world and the Cold War that uh, that results. It's interesting to consider what might have happened. Now, I don't go in for counterfactuals really, you know, um, that's kind of a bit Nar Ferguson for me. But it's interesting to consider what possibly could have happened if Roosevelt had lived. His views on Vietnam were that Vietnam should be independent. Roosevelt dies in April and within. Couple of months, the, uh, the 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 battle lines, frontiers of the new Cold War, are being drawn up. Um, Harry Truman is not Roosevelt. Harry Truman is a, a, a far more determined anti-communist and a, a far far more far less uh, convinced by the, the the potential of goodwill from Moscow. And by uh, early 19, uh, by mid nineteen forty five. The the, um, the wind is changing over the subject of Vietnam. The French are going to get their own way, and they are going to return to Vietnam. Um, and Ho Chi Minh, who had held out hopes that he might possibly have an American patron, is bitterly disappointed. The thing that the Americans were largely unaware of uh, during this climate um, was that the Vietnamese would be probably most reluctant to fall under China's sphere of influence, irrespective of where, you know, The at this point China is far from falling to communism, um, but uh, the Americans were largely unaware of the, the almost thousand years of conflict between the Chinese and the Vietnamese, and the um, fear that the uh, Vietnamese had of their northern neighbour, was emphasized in 1940 late 1945 when Chiang Kai-shek actually marches an army into north vietnam anyway so i'll continue on this theme in the next few podcasts because there is a, a lot more to say on the subject of the um of the the kind of the, the roots of the vietnam war but it's just interesting to observe i think that um the um kind of the cauldron of the Second World War um, generates um, many of the conflicts of the uh, the Cold War era. I mean, we need to look at the Middle East to, to observe that, and that's a whole other conversation. But um, if we're looking at the, these long-term causes, we need to look at the complexities of the, um, particularly the second part of the war, when the writings on the war for Germany and Japan, but very quickly... The potential victors of the war begin to um jockey for position and and work out how they can recast the world. You have um three general world views struggling for competition, a soviet world view an American worldview and between Britain and france the the old world view the old world view of um colonial imperialism i mean the, the two of them bicker and fight between one another um but ultimately um do cooperate to some extent to allow the the, the notion of um uh, a return to um, the the world of old empires before the war to to perpetuate itself and obviously that's a, a dream that cannot be you know the uh, the war had devastated the British economy and devastated France um, physically and kind of morally. France had been conquered, France had been defeated, France has um, a, a kind of a, a weight of guilt um, hanging over it and it doesn't shift really for much of the Cold War period. Anyway, um, more on this next time. I hope you found this useful. And um, there's a a few announcements at the moment. Okay, so the next Explaining History title that's out at the moment is the third part of the Red Sun at War um, series. Um, Red uh, Red Sun at War, part three, uh, battling from the Coral Sea to the Kokoda Trail. And it's about how the Allied Powers finally get their act together in the... um, the year of nineteen forty-two to nineteen forty-three, and um, at yeah, the bat- battles of Coral Sea, Midway, and various others, uh, draw a line uh, that protects Australia. And the battleground, uh, battlegrounds of New Guinea and Guadalcanal, are, are, are fiercely contested. And really, um, my argument here is that it is it is in this period of time, really, that Japan is uh, defeated, um, and the rest becomes a fait complete but read the ebook you'll see now from the brilliantly talented Julia Routledge who is the new um, the new writer for explaining history we've got the first in the series of 20th century lives so you can download now go to amazon and get it Download the, um, the e-book biography of George Orwell. It's a brilliant abridged story, um, examination of his life, his works, and his various ideological and political movements, changes um, and uh, an exploration of, of his, his motivations. It's well worth a read. It's absolutely cracking. You really need to read it. Finally, um, we've got four titles coming out this spring. Really, really important you look out for those if you're studying or if you're an enthusiast. They are the new series called The Century, where you're looking at um, Chris Kostov is uh, writing for us uh, The Communist Century, which is obviously uh, the history of world communism. It's rise, it's fall, it's varieties... Uh, Chinese communism, Soviet communism, third world communism, and also the kind of the, the vitriol of anti-communism uh in, in the West and uh, other parts of the world. William McSweeney has written for us, or is in the process of writing for us, uh, the destructive century. So um we're we're looking at um the the history of the industrialization of warfare how the 20th century We've we've gone from uh, trenches and gas and machine guns to aerial warfare, mass bombing, um, and all the rest of it. Uh, Lovely stuff. Um, We're looking at the 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 kind of the um, the politics, the economics, the ideology behind uh, this this devastating century. And part three, Tyrell Eskelson, is looking for us uh, at the the American century. so we're looking at the you know, the rise of American power, the uh, shift from isolation to globalism, the American economy, and America's uh, the export of American culture around the world. You know, America's great gift to the world is popular culture. So all these things are in, in the same format as explaining history e-books. They're shorts, They are um, you know condensed uh, knowledge that you need to have but also without losing its complexity, its detail, its nuance, its subtlety, um, which is what I think really sets explaining history aside from a a lot of the stuff out there. But that's just me. Anyway, um, tune in for more on this, and we'll catch up soon, and uh, I'll be talking next time about Ho Chi Minh himself. Anyway, all the best. Bye-bye.